Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AC54, Death and Taxes, I, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 158, November 4, 1987. A little while ago, Otto Scott and I finished discussing the subject of taxes and taxation. Our conversation took us uh, here and there in byways that uh, we didn't expect when we started. In between, as we were uh, discussing getting started on this second one, on death, the other half of death and taxes, Otto said, this will be a little different. We've had experience with taxation, but not yet with death. <laughs> so uh, we're ready to postpone that experience for a while. However, we will discuss death in this session. Now, in the 50s, one scholar wrote an essay on the subject of death, a very interesting essay. He predicted that the old pornography, sexual pornography, would soon become highly respectable and no longer be classified as pornography, as something forbidden, taboo, off-limits. And he said a new pornography is already developing, and that pornography is death. It is the subject now that is increasingly taboo that people are unwilling to face up to because they don't have the faith that once marked the American people. About that same time, I learned that in many a rest home or nursing home for elderly uh, people, it was commonplace when someone died to tell the other patients as the uh, mortician came to take the body that Mrs. So-and-so has gone to the hospital, not that Mrs. So-and-so had died. They were unwilling to use the word death. Now, that's uh, the hallmark of pornography, something that is forbidden, taboo, that nobody wants to discuss or talk about. Well, this is a curious fact. But a very revealing fact, it tells us how far we have wandered from the Christian faith. Because for us as Christians, death is a fact. Now, not necessarily one we're happy about, but it's something we have to live with. We're mortal. Perhaps some of us feel like uh, the writer... Uh, Aramsaroyan, who in his last illness said, I knew that all men must die, and that I had to die perhaps someday, but somehow I thought I would be an exception. <laughs> Most of us go on living as though we are going to be that exception. We don't prepare for it. We don't think about it. It's the pornography, the ultimate pornography, that we avoid. Well, with those general comments, uh, 
Otto, do you have a reaction, or do you want to make some general comments now? Well, I think I don't think the average American any longer sees death. I remember when I was a child being sent up the hill to the Callens, who were relatives of my mother's side of the family. And Mrs. Callan had died, and Mr. Callan was quite elderly, and he was uh, in bad shape. It was a Sunday morning, uh, women were all in the kitchen, and they said, oh, go on upstairs, first the bedroom. And I went upstairs, and I sat in a chair, and the old man was on the bed, in the bed. And while I was sitting there, I guess I was about eight, uh, his chest arched up, and there was a death rattle, and he died. And I knew that he died. I had never seen anyone die before, but I knew immediately that he he died. And I went back down the stairs, and I stood in child will in the doorway of the kitchen, and they said, well, did you see Pop, or whatever they called him? I've forgotten. And I said, yes. And before I could say anything more, they said, well, go on home. And they shooed me out. So I went home. And when the news came, somebody came running down the hill and said, Mr. Callan is dead, I, to my shame, pretended surprise together with everybody else because I didn't know how to explain that I had been there and I thought I might be blamed or something, <laughs> how, how you are. Well, years later, of course, I've seen a great deal of death. I covered crime and I was in the war and I remember on Saipan, they had bodies piled up like cordwood, uh, and they were digging a trench with a trench digger. You, you could, it was a warm weather, and you could smell death in the air long before you came to the bodies. Uh, sure, they told the people back home that they all got a separate burial, but they didn't. There wasn't time for that sort of a nicety. And I remember, uh, in fact, on the, one of the ships I was on, we borrowed a film from a naval vessel, and it was a Boris Karloff mystery. And Boris Karloff was driving a stagecoach, and there was a cadaver bumping against him, and he was showing all signs of fear. And all the soldiers and sailors were watching this went into hysterics. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen, because to see somebody... Uh, a dead person was very common. Now we have been uh, at peace for quite a while, pretty much. I don't think the average young person in the United States has ever seen anyone die, excepting in the films, uh, an imaginary death. And I believe there is a general American feeling now that death is an intrusion which really should not be permitted. And if anyone dies, it's someone else's fault. The doctor didn't do right, or the nurse didn't do right, or he wasn't—he didn't get a break, or whatever. This is—it's a violation of nature. It's not a part of nature, and that's a pretty bad way to get. Yes. Well, in the 1950s, I had a funeral service for an elderly woman. Now she had been orphaned at an early age. She had grown up, married, had a large family, many grandchildren, so there were quite a few in that family. But there had never been a death in that family for over 60 years. Good heavens. When she died, 
it was the most uh, tragic funeral I have ever been to or conducted because they all fell apart. Hmm. They had no contact with death. Now, I think in varying degrees that's the uh, situation most Americans are in. Where there is a death, it is... Uh, it's out of sight. It's out of sight. They have no experience with it. Whereas when you and I grew up, we were constantly in the presence of death. Lots at deathbeds. Lots of people died. Yes. I and uh, we, uh, well, at least I often had to take care of the bodies and help out. But death became a normal part of life. It was something like taxes. It was there always. Moreover, uh, there's this fact, too, which I think is very important. Some deaths are very painful. They're hard to witness because the persons who are dying may be uh, someone you know or a relative of someone, but they are without faith, and they often die hard. Very hard. But I have seen things with... Uh, Christians that are so awe-inspiring, whenever I think of them, I'm deeply moved because I know how uh, trifling, really, a fact death is, and how tremendous uh, the sense of victory that some who are dying uh, do experience. In some instances, I they apparently briefly there have a vision of both worlds. They are in one and can see in the other. Their faces light up. Their faces light up and they say things that you cannot account for. And uh, it's a very profound experience, a very, very uh, tremendous experience. Well, you recall that the Victorian writers always had and spent quite a bit of effort on their death scenes. Yes. And and this was always, in every novel practically, somebody died, and there was uh, a death scene. For a good deal of the history of Christendom, it has been considered sad if a person dies suddenly. Mm -hmm. Yes, they didn't have a chance to prepare. Yes. Uh, the... Uh, Good death is, no matter how painful and lingering it is, when you die slowly and have a chance to have your family come... Take care of things. To take care of things, to counsel them, to uh, plead with them, to be uh, faithful to the Lord, and so on. Well, I had a friend who went to the physician, and the doctor said, I have bad news. And this fellow said, uh, what is it? He said, well, you're going to die. He said, I know that. Are you implying you know the Tate? <laughs> and he had cancer. And he set up, he took care of everything. He set up a family trust. And as it happened, he died, uh, his heart gave out before he even went to the hospital. So it was a good death. Yes. It was a good death. On the other hand, a friend of mine, a sports writer, went into a hospital in New York 
It's hard for me to forget him. He was a nice guy. I liked him. Good writer. Horse, horse uh, specialist. Races. And uh, Jock Whitney came to see him and so forth and so on. And he had an operation that removed his larynx. And I went to see him a few days after that, and he had fear in his eyes. And it was very hard to see, very painful to see. He died very badly, mm -hmm. very badly. And I hated to see him go that way. Yes. Well, every now and then, about once a year, I have an occasion when conversation gets to the subject of death to talk about some of the deathbeds where I have been. Uh, when I was on the Indian Reservation in particular, I was the only pastor for a hundred miles in any direction. So both the white ranchers and the Indians, I was the only one. I was there at a great many deathbeds, a great many. I had more funerals than... Uh, Ministers have, in a lifetime, in a year or two at times. But the most dramatic in those years was uh, of an, a young and attractive Indian girl. She was a wild girl. I knew her father quite well. But once when... Uh, the weather was bad. On a Sunday night, she came by. I guess she came into the church for refuge from the weather. And uh, she came right up to about the third row and sat there and listened very attentively. And I was surprised that Elizabeth was there, knowing quite a bit about her. And after the service, she uh, stopped at the door to ask me a question or two as she shook my hand. And she said, uh, when I answered her question, and I don't remember what it was. It was something about Christ. She said, yes, that's true. It has to be true. And she said a few other things and then left. I thought, well, I wonder if she'll be back. But she was back the next week and the week after, three, four Sundays in a row. And uh, I talked with her. She was uh, a very happy and joyful person. Truly believed. It was amazing, that change in her. Well, then came the next Sunday, and she was not there. And I thought, oh, well, she's gone back to her old ways. Because she was wild. She had been very promiscuous. Uh, she had lived without a care in her mind. So I was concerned, and I thought, I, I have a duty, even though it's painful, to follow up on this. Well, I found she was in the hospital. I called on her, and uh, 
she told me what had been diagnosed. She had paresis, which is syphilis, which has gone through the system and reached the brain. And she told me very matter-of-factly and with faith and peace it would have done credit to a saint. And she asked me if I could get a cross for her, a little cross, because she said, I won't be able to talk or think. But she said, I hope I can hold that cross and still know what it means. I called on her every day. And uh, she listened very joyfully to everything I had to say. You could not have imagined anyone that was more at peace and more sure of heaven. Well, I had to go away on a trip. I don't remember where. I was gone about a week. And I came back, and I was told that uh, there was nothing they could do for her at uh, the hospital, and they sent her home. I went out there, and she'd been in a coma for two, three days. And I prayed, and she recognized my voice. And she came back to consciousness. And uh, she was not able to speak, but she motioned the top of the bed where the cross was hanging and her mother took it down and uh, she motioned to bring it closer and she kissed it and smiled at me and drifted off now when you see deaths like that that was the most dramatic because of the difference in a few weeks between what Elizabeth had been and what she became well you realize there's more involved in our dying when we are christians than ourselves we don't face it alone there's a great deal involved in how you die and how you meet death yes Uh, it's it's the final uh, test Mm -hmm. and uh, a society that rejects death this is an odd thing to say no, it's an accurate thing. A society that rejects death is not able to live. No. Because it has forgotten what's important. Yes. Now, to do anything to stay alive is to destroy your life. Yes. Is to make life meaningless. I mean, anyone who surrenders, basic, a basic surrender, such as the American people are trying, being propagandized to do. Mm-hmm. They're being told they're going to be incinerated by nuclear bombs and all this sort of nonsense when the Soviets don't have to fight us. They're uh, maneuvering us into surrender. This mm-hmm. is what's going on. And any, any country that surrenders, this is what happened to the Romans. Yes. Death lost its meaning. It lost its significance. It lost its grandeur. People lost their importance. They were thrown to the lions. 
like you show a piece of meat. And we're doing this in the films. We're making death trivial. We're taking away the significance. One of the things that annoys me when I don't I watch these things as much now that I, as I used to, but one of the things that annoys me about Hollywood is that they never allow any catharsis. No. The villain is never arrested and given a punishment. He's always knocked out the window in, in a minute. If he gets away with it for an hour and, and a half, and in the last 10 seconds, he's shot. Mm -hmm. Well, this cheats you. You don't see him suffer for sin. And I don't think I've ever really uh, been afraid of death in that sense, because, as you, as you say, it was a fairly common thing. We all knew kids that died before they grew up. They died of pneumonia. They died of diphtheria. They died of all these illnesses that the doctors couldn't do anything about. You knew you were lucky if you didn't get it. But it wasn't uh, a satanic thing. There was nothing evil about it. There's an association now of death and evil. Yes, very which, good Which point. is another perversion. Yes. And, and God is treated as evil for having people die. Yes. Sin is the, uh, death is the penalty for sin, but it is not sin nor evil in and of itself. That's right. It is the consequence of a world that has abandoned God. And for the Christian, it is the step to the fullest kind of life. Well, yeah. If, if you're a Christian, of all people, a Christian shouldn't be afraid of death. Under the rubble, remember that? Yeah. Where, where uh, this, the, the prisoners, the, the ones who believed, even the KGB gives up on. Yes. There are some dramatic stories that have come out of the Soviet Union slave labor camps of how Christians in those horrors have lived and died and how they have known what it is to have faith in the face of monstrous evils. And part of our weakness as a, as a people is that we've forgotten both how to live and die, as you said. Well, they prettify, they prettify the corpse. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not any great admirer of Jessica Mitford, who, whose great argument against the uh, undertakers and embalmers was that they were making money out of their trade. Well, they've been making money out of that trade since the time of the Egyptians and before mm -hmm. then, and admitted the uh, they may charge too much. Uh, I don't know how she measures these I things. I think they're fairly modest, having but been through it. I, the thing I'm is that they bring a lot of comfort to the bereaved. Mm -hmm. It's a mark of, uh, it's really uh, the whole right of undertaking and burial and everything else is to uh, assuage the grief of the survivors. Yes. Everyone well, knows that there's just a shell there. What Jessica Mitford and others like her wanted was to hide death. They wanted it to be something that would leave uh, no trace. Uh, cremation, disposal of the ashes. It's becoming more and more popular. Yes. Know. No cemeteries, because cemeteries right. will re uh, remind us of death. And you notice that the, the crosses have been removed from the military cemeteries, oh, yes. lest they offend. Yes. 
I think it's uh, amusing and ironic that in big cities like uh, New York, the cemeteries have now an important uh, role. They are wildlife refuges. Is that so? Because of the rabbits trees. and the squirrels and so forth? No, birds. That? Birds. They become a haven for birds. Is they that can, so? Uh, since they can't be hunted in a cemetery, uh-huh. you will find more varieties of birds in most urban cemeteries than in the countryside, anywhere. Isn't that so interesting? Cemeteries have become a place of songbirds and other birds, mm-hmm. and bird watchers are finding them to be an ideal place to identify more varieties than they could identify in any other place. Funny. Yes, very funny. It's strange now, people will die in a war. I noticed I was in London quite often in World War II. I never saw anyone show signs of fear. Uh, Neither on the ship. Well, I'll take it back. There was one radio operator on one vessel I was on that cracked up. He kept getting uh, in hearing SOSs and things like that, and of course he couldn't transmit. He could only receive, and the captain of our vessel said, I don't want to hear any more of those messages unless the German surfaces with 12-inch guns. And then he didn't even have anyone to tell the messages to. But across the board, people were very physically brave. Now this is exactly opposite what Stephen Crane said in The Red Badge of Courage. Uh, or, or What Price Glory, or Journey's End, those shows that we saw when we were kids, in which there were great hysterical outbursts and, and all breakdowns and all that kind of thing. Well, I never saw anyone show any of this heavy emotion. And it occurred to me then that the human race is physically very brave and has to be, because if it wasn't brave, they couldn't have wars. Yes. Men are not really afraid to die when they get confronted with it, but the idea of death from a distance uh, creates a sort of a hysteria. You remember all the peace movements of the 30s and, and everyone saying, well, I don't want my son to go to fight and so forth and so on, and then after Pearl Harbor, clack, was all different. Yes. Well, people are not afraid to die when they believe that something is worth dying for. That's That's the key. That's the key. That's a very good key. Yes. And it is at that point our culture has stripped people of the ability to live and to die. There is nothing in life today as uh, the public schools rear children, as most parents do, as television and the films do, that makes life worth living or dying for. And as a result, we have a bankrupt people, morally bankrupt, intellectually bankrupt. Nothing is worthwhile. Well, that's a terrible statement. Uh, It's overdrawn, of course. But there's a lot of truth to it. If you... if you deny heroism, if you deny nobility, one of the great... uh, but unconscious revelations of Freud's character was that in his entire theory he never gave a creditable motive to any human action. Yes, a very good point. 
What a projection. Everything was debased. Everything. Yes. No love, no nobility, no sacrifice, no unselfishness. Yes, Van Til, in one of his uh, books, describes the whole world of Freud and of modern philosophy, modern thought, as integration downward into the void. Very good phrase. Yes, he says, man is explained in terms of his unconscious, the man in terms of the child, the child in terms of the primitive, the primitive in terms of the animal, and we have a continual regression downward. Well, that's very true. You know, of course, you read about the revelation that it was a exhibition of primitive art that gave Picasso and his associates their inspiration. Mm -hmm. And very poor imitations of primitive art, I might say, because it lacks the awe-inspiring feeling that you get from looking at the real thing. When I was in Africa, I saw some actual African idols, and they were awesome. Grotesque, but powerful. Yes. Well, the real thing would have always escaped the Costco and his crowd, so it's uh, ironic that they did gravitate to what was fraudulent and not primitive art. Of course, it isn't primitive because we don't believe in the doctrine of primitive man, but just that these people are culturally on a lower level by choice have regressed because they did not want uh, to advance. Well, that's uh, a different story. It's interesting. I don't know if you read Washing of the Spears or not. All those random murders by the chief of the tribe, of the Zulus. And I, I read about another place where the chief said, the only way he could send a message to the departed was through killing somebody, give them the message and then kill them, and they would tell his father yeah. in the spirit world. Mm -hmm. I so remember I could, that. I remember that. As we continue our discussion of the subject of death, we're going to get into specific areas. Otto, do you want to start off with the matter of suicide. Yes. Suicide in the pagan world was admired. And in Japan also. And for very similar reasons. A loss of face, a loss of honor. Uh, in uh, Nero's time and Caligula and whatnot, it was customary for the Caesar to tell a man yes. as a favor Seneca. <laughs> to kill himself uh, so that he could be spared the dishonor of a public execution. And there are suicide societies now flourishing in our midst, uh, telling people that they will assist them to kill themselves. And then we have the individual who will give the doctors permission to terminate his life. Uh, he, will, he will tell them, it's okay, now you can turn off the support or do this or that. This is another form of suicide. Yes. Now, 
to accept the reality of death is one thing, but to rush into death is something else. It's a denial of God. It's a denial of life. And it's a, an ultimate form of escape. It's against the law in the United States, but it's turned into a dead-letter law, no pun intended. It's, it's a law that's no longer being applied. Uh, Thomas Masaryk, the first president of Czechoslovakia, wrote a book some years prior to World War I, a study of suicide. And he saw it as something that arose with the loss of faith and a will generally to death in a society. So that when you see societies with an increasing number of suicides, you know there is something seriously wrong with the people in that culture. It's a bad sign. Yes. Now, we could go on. Infanticide is a form of self-death. Yes. For a woman in particular, uh, abortion is the death of everything that a woman stands for. And, of course, it's a male solution to a female problem. I think it's very interesting that it's been sold as a woman's choice, when, as a matter of fact, it's the man's choice to evade responsibility, and it's very painless for the men. They don't suffer a thing. And how they manage to sell this to women as uh, something desirable uh, is really uh, a tribute to the power of propaganda. But it's a suicide of the future. It's yeah. you're killing, you're killing the next generation. And I link it in my mind with, uh, with suicide because you're killing what's most noble in a relationship. Back in the 50s, I read a book about a uh, primitive culture in the uh, South Pacific and the study had been uh, one of years research on the part of a scholar so it went back some years before the 50s and what the man found was that there was a great deal of uh, abortion and infanticide in that uh, culture and the reason for it uh, the women were very uh, prompt to tell him. It was their way of prolonging youth. Oh. They said, when you become a mother, you become older. You become old. But if you don't have children, you're still free to go dancing. You're still free to go dancing and spend time with the boys. Sure. So it was an evasion of life an evasion of responsibility, an evasion of maturity. Yes, well, of course, in, in our case, in the case of abortions here, it's an evasion of maturity on the part of the man and the woman. Yes. And uh, we have now aborted more people than there are in Canada. Uh, when the status demographers talk about the impossibility of Social Security, mm -hmm. it's because we're killing the future. There would be plenty of young people to take care of the older workers if we weren't killing yes. the children. Yes. 
Imagine we've killed 25 million so far. Yes. You, can you imagine what it'll be like in the year 2040 or 2030? All these phantoms. This is a dying civilization. Mm -hmm. It's killing itself because it wants to live in comfort. And I'm reminded of the days in Rome. You remember that uh, the Roman gravestones, all of these couples Mm -hmm. without children yes. and how the blessed union of these two people who had been married for 40 years or 20 years or whatever it was row after row after row yes. in the necropolis of Rome same thing Yes, they didn't have children because well, children were an expense hmm. a burden this matter of aborting babies in this tribe uh, it's Polynesian culture I think it was one of the islands in order to maintain perpetual youth I've had an interesting experience with that which I referred to I think sometime before but I'll repeat it again because I think it bears repeating back in the early 70s I believe it was in a Calcedon report I made reference to the fact of how we had uh, fallen in love with youth as a society perpetual youth so that perpetual immaturity was cultivated on all sides and I cited the case of a, of a woman in her 80s wearing a bikini who uh, was a ghastly sight truly ghastly I know I've been to Miami <laughs> and uh, she was made up as though she were a teenager and was parading proudly and I felt that that was uh, not only immaturity but it was grossly irreligious because it was denying the facts of life as God has made them. I had some very heated letters over that. Is that so? Yes. Not only from a uh, few on our mailing list, but others who happened to see it. Because now, what was their objection? What right did I have to deprive them of the privilege of enjoying youth all their lives? Well, you didn't have her arrested, did you? <laughs> no. Well, you just made a comment. Yes. At the beginning of the 80s, I referred to that episode and the reaction I had in another Calcedon report. And I got a letter again about that, rebuking me for daring to think that way. So, as a culture, we want perpetual youth. Well, no yeah. maturity, no responsibility. Actually, I find youth boring. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very pretty. They're very pretty, but they don't know anything. You can't yeah. hold a decent conversation. <laughs> you know the famous remark by George Bernard Shaw, one of the few sensible things he said, Youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Back to Methuselah was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> we not only have uh, suicide, and were you going to tell a story about... Oh, yes. Yes, well, oh, about uh, Skid Row. When I was on the Bowery at the Bowery Mission, 
there was a case where seven or eight, I've forgotten the exact number, winos died drinking paint thinner, which they were buying from a particular hardware store. And it, it hit the front page of the New York Times and the Daily News and so forth. And, of course, they immediately flew at the hardware store proprietor for selling them the paint thinner. And it turned out that he had changed the brand. And the new brand killed them off, poisoned them. And Gay Talese, who later on has written a number of books, was at that time a feature writer on the Times, and he ran a story about saying that people on the Bowery didn't care. And I was curious about that, so the precinct house was not far away from the mission, and I went over there and I talked to the detective in charge of that particular event. He said, what do you mean they didn't care? He said, what do you think this is, 1810? He said, these were people uh, that had names, they had biographies. He said, we'd pick them up and put them in Rikers Island to uh, take care of them through the winter. We knew who they were. They had families, they had relatives. He said, their, their families sent for them. They, some of them were on pensions, and some of them were on disability, and some were on Social Security. Their family sent for all except one, and that one was decently buried because the cops took up a collection. Mm. And I called Elise and said, "You know that you didn't uh, you didn't do that story right." He said, "I did what the uh, city desk asked me to do. The editor told me to go down and interview the guy on the street." And he said, "That was the reaction of the guy on the street." I said, "Well, why didn't you talk to the cops?" He said, "He didn't tell me to." Mm so much for his ability as a writer and so much for the truth yes now the real story was a good story we don't have as unfeeling and callous a society as is presented to no. us but we are moving in that direction via the abortion and via the uh, suicide and via the euthanasia yes well euthanasia is a growing problem because it is being practiced even though it is not legal. Did you read about Holland? Yes, the Wall Street Journal story. Maybe the readers don't don't know what that's all about. Well, why don't you tell them, Otto? Well, the uh, old people are afraid to go to the hospital in Holland because the doctors are practicing euthanasia. Yeah. And they have been given permission to by the courts if in the opinion of the physician it's going to be too expensive to keep an old person alive they just simply snuff him out so the old people are becoming frightened to death frightened and not to death but frightened of the doctors euthanasia the doctors in other parts of europe have written to the dutch medical authorities protesting against this but so far the dutch have refused to abandon the practice well, in a, a book written a few years back, uh, Dr. Uh, Charles Rice of the Notre Dame Law School predicted that by the end of this century, classes of people would be put to death. Classes. The yeah. elderly, the crippled, like Hitler. Yes, the or mentally deficient, or any group, the mentally deficient, yes. or uh, whatever, because he said 
the abortion decision as it has been subsequently implemented has now uh, decreed that death is not a medical uh, person is not a medically defined per, uh, entity but a legally defined entity so that life and death and persons are now what the law declares them to be so if we are declared to be non-persons uh, like the in the womb in the womb or out of the womb we can be executed he believes that unless we as Christians turn this around, we will be seeing groups of peoples declared non-persons. And I think he's right. Well, I'm sorry to say I think he's right, too. I think they're doing that in Holland. And I think this is really what we're moving into when we discuss death. We're discussing life when you discuss death. You can't separate the two. It's a live person that dies. And now we come into the question of who determines. Yes, and here you find a tremendous contradiction, an evil contradiction, because there are countless numbers of people out there who if you open your mouth about euthanasia, in any group where you don't know the group, and sometimes, surprisingly, where you think you know, they will come up with the idea that people who are terminally ill, who are going to die, should be put to death, well, whether now, they want it or not. Now, here we had one of the Alsops. One of the Alsops, a very a successful man who had something minor he thought wrong and he dropped in, he had time, he dropped in and the doctor began the test. And the test went on and it turned out that he had an extremely rare terminal disease. And it took him a number of months to die. And during those months he wrote a book. And at the end of the book, he said he, he finally he was reconciled to it, and he finally said there's a time to live and a time to die and a time to sleep. And the book came out within, I think, just a few weeks of his death. And almost all the reviewers were respectful but one. And that one, I wrote his name down and put it in my file so that I would watch out, that I would never run into that man, because he had no admiration for what was a very fine, noble departure. Mm -hmm. But according to these people, he would have been snuffed out. Yes, all right. Now, here is the thing. <laughs> to enrage these people, all you have to do is to say this. Well, if you believe the terminally ill whose death if allowed to uh, follow its natural course is going to be very expensive for them and for society why not practice euthanasia with all homosexuals who have AIDS right now mm -hmm. then they are angry why? because they don't want euthanasia for their fair-haired people. And the homosexuals 
classify as those for whom we must spend millions to keep them alive. Well, I don't quite understand the tenderness there for these loathsome types. Uh, they, historians call them the vultures of civilization. Whenever they arise in great clouds, as they are now, they say that civilization is terminally ill. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration because, after all, you recall uh, the period in France when the court was totally corrupted, but the French nation survived. We will survive these people. They're expendable. I really don't understand uh, this nonsense. I think certainly everything should be done to stem the course of the disease in the name of the security of others. Yes. But certainly not for uh, any sentimental reasons, for what are a degraded bunch of sick people. Well, in the court of Louis XIV, there was quite a powerful homosexual element headed by Louis' younger brother. And I wish medical historians would turn their attention to those homosexuals because I think they would find that AIDS is not new. Those people were dying horrible deaths. And the same is true of the homosexuals in the Roman Empire. Well, isn't it always true that all illnesses due to an immunity deficiency of some sort? Yes. How could this be new? Yes. Well, we are seeing that today people have a will to death, and hence the prevalence of suicide, euthanasia, abortion, and more. And we are told very plainly in Scripture, in Proverbs 8:36. He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. So we have to say that in spite of all the supposed passion for living in our time, there is, all the same, a strong love of death. Well, look at the Halloween mm -hmm. just a few days ago. I think the reveling and uh, they've attached a diabolical significance to Halloween. All Saints' Night, mm -hmm. All Hallows' Eve. This was supposed mm -hmm. to be and was for centuries a Christian ceremony honoring the dead, your own dead, the family dead, your predecessors, your friends. And instead we've got these idiots running around asking for cookies. No, to trivialize all the great rituals has had a lot to do with bringing down the faith. Mm -hmm. You know, we mentioned Freud earlier. There was one aspect of his work that I've always felt was very, very telling. Freud felt that man, and the kind of man he was analyzing and studied, was unregenerate man, was governed by two forces, the will to live and a will to death. And he said there is no question that the will to death 
is much stronger and will ultimately destroy mankind. Now, I don't agree with him in his conclusion. Uh, he did make that statement, incidentally, in correspondence with Einstein. But he was right in discerning in modern man, in unregenerate man everywhere, a will to death. Well, if there's no higher purpose in life than oneself, there's no value. Yes. Who wants the world to be limited to his own measure? Well, a lot of people do, and they find it's fatal. Most of mankind lives that way by choice. No, there has to be a higher purpose. Yes. And uh, there's one other aspect, and you know, the doctors have moved in here a long way. William Belitho, in his book, Murder for Profit, a brilliant book, examined serial murders, who in those days, there weren't so many of them, they're now fairly common, but he took uh, Burke and Hare, the body snatchers and, and murderers, and a number, Landrieu, the Frenchman, and so forth. And in his preface, it's really worth reading, he said from time to time he talked about the escape of the physician in Edinburgh who bought the bodies from Burke and Hare, even though he knew that they had murdered them to deliver them. He said, now that doctor went away. He was, re he was never charged. He, he had to move out of Edinburgh, but he practiced presumably somewhere else. He was a respectable man. He was a physician. And he said the medical profession has come forward time and again, persistently, claiming authority over these, all these areas and claiming to understand the mind of the murderer, like Dr. Freud, claiming to know all about what makes people tick, and so on and so forth, but without the responsibility. Mm -hmm. Now, we have a limited number of machines that take care of people's kidneys and things like that. So they've set up a series of rules as to who they will save. You and I would not be eligible. We're too old. No matter how much we may contribute to the world in which we live, they have decided that youth is more important. Yes. And several other factors, not to say anything about money. Well, we'll get even with them, Otto. We'll outlive the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Lord willing. <laughs> Why are you shaking your head, Dorothy? <laughs> well, the thing is, we have a society today that is afraid of death and yet is courting it. It's flirting with everything that kills. Uh, it's on drugs. The drug culture is extensive it's among people. It's a slow suicide. It's a slow suicide. And in one way or another, people are doing things that will uh, lead to death. I was told a while back of someone who is uh, virtually a fanatic that... Uh, um, exercise classes, exercise uh, rituals, diet, and so on, but they not only smoke, 
steadily, but are on hard drugs. And exercise at the same time. Yes. This is the kind of contradiction you find. The will to suicide is so strong in our culture that even when they are professing to prepare to live longer and to take care of themselves, they are destructive. They really want to look good. They're not trying to live longer. They're just trying to live prettier. I think you're right. Uh, very, very right. Well, <laughs> I don't know why, because after all, you don't have to see yourself. <laughs> you just see others. <laughs> well, uh, there's a great... Uh there's a double whammy going on. There's lots of paradoxes. Uh, they all want to look prettier, and yet the films and the stage has never portrayed uglier people. Yes. Isn't that strange? Very interesting point. Isn't that strange? Yes. Men with great seams in their faces. They've got 55, 58, 60-year-old men playing against 20-year-old women. And it it it, uh, it doesn't make any sense. Yes. The good-looking young men that used to play the ingenue role or whatever mm -hmm. they call it uh, have, have vanished. Yes. We've got an ugliness cult going on. That's right. It's uh, uh, so many of the men who play the leads. <laughs> you wonder how they could, uh, <laughs> you know. Yes, they're hardly romantic figures. Whatever their role may cast them as. So, if, if what's happening here is a series of incoherences. Good word. Incoherences. It, we are losing the structure of a society. Everything is breaking into clusters, and the clusters are not consistent with one another. Yes. What we have here just the other day, a gruesome operation on a very tiny infant, putting all kinds of organs, transplanting organs into that infant, at the same time that we're having millions of abortions. Yes. Well, I was interested last week in hearing uh, a very fine uh, investment banker say that whether you looked at the stock market, the commodity market, Washington, D.C., or the world at large, you'd have to say with Yates, the center does not hold. Yes. Yes. Having lost the faith, we have no center, and nothing holds things together. And so the disbursement, the scattering, the collapse is beginning. Well, our time is almost up. Is there a, some, a last word uh, here? Otto, not a last word on death, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, on any related subject. Well, I think many of the things that we're saying and thinking are paralleled in the thoughts of millions upon millions of others. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our problems is that the media is not engaged in any serious discussion of these serious issues and will not permit some of the views that you and I have just expressed to be heard. Yes. If, if uh, they ever opened the gates, lots of things would change very quickly. Yes. 
Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. Dot com.